You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Matthew 7, verse 7 through 12, please give God's word your full attention. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord of our, for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Jamie. Let's pray and spend some time reflecting on this uh, abundantly practical passage. Let's, would you pray with me first? Our Heavenly Father, we now come before you as your church and ask, as you have done to all those who've come before us, that through this, your holy word, you would speak to us, your church, so that we might more and more become your people, shaped into the ways and uh, the, the, the type of people you want us to be, following after the ways of the kingdom of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. So send your spirit with power to come upon us, to convict us, and to make us a different people this week through an encounter with you through this, your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, this week, I know not everyone here comes from a church background and people come from various different denominational traditions, but this week, uh, at least as far as it concerns me, the Western church lost something of a giant. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller passed away uh, of pancreatic cancer, uh, I believe, on, if memory serves me right, on Friday. Uh, if you don't know who Tim Keller was, he was, you know, a best-selling author, frequent commentator, on various cultural issues, but he's most famous for planting a church in New York City that grew to be of, of tremendous size. And he had tremendous influence in the, the denomination that our church is part of, but also across denominational boundaries generally and encouraging church plants, especially in urban centers. And it's not an overstatement to say that had it not been for the ministry of Dr. Keller, it's hard to know if our church plant would exist. We're part of an organization called City to City that he helped found. And play, his, his blessing and support of various churches like ours uh, played a critical role in finding the resources necessary to see a church plant. So it was hard to, hard to know that he passed. And uh, I had had an opportunity to rub shoulders with him once or twice, but not in any serious way. I think I was reflecting at a wedding yesterday. Uh, the first time I met him, I was in a washroom washing my hands, and I see this towering, bald, white guy, you know, over my shoulders, and uh, we look up and meet eyes, and it's that awkward moment where he catches you staring. And so then I immediately locked my hand, uh, you know, on my, uh, my eyes on my hands as I rubbed them together. And I don't know what happened, but next thing I know, he had been done washing his hands despite coming after me, dried off his hands, and left the uh, washroom, and I was still rubbing my hands together frantically. So if he has any memory of me, it might be just yet another mentally ill uh, pastor. I've had a couple of uh, times where I bumped into him, but I did have one time where I was able to have a conversation with him. I was invited to a meal, and I was sitting with a bunch of other younger pastors, 
And again, this towering bald white figure came up and said, is this seat taken at our table? You know, a table of eight, is this seat taken? And all of us in kind of starstruck eyes didn't know what to do. And, uh, you know, one of them said, yeah, yeah, it's taken. You can't sit here. And uh, <laughs> which he'd never really knew how to experience rejection. So uh, he laughed. Anyway, he took the seat and we had a good chance. I did my best to try to make an impression on him, which I fell flat on my face. You can ask me about that some other time. However, uh, these young pastors did have a productive conversation with him about what, is, what, what piece of advice would he pass on to us? You know, a lot of us were in a position, we were preparing to church plant. I hadn't planted Christ Church Toronto yet. And we asked him, what, what advice would you give to us younger pastors? What do we need to be doing? What, what must we be working on? What must we be gauging if we're going to have the type of ministry that sort of makes an impact on a city like, uh, like New York City, like he had done? And, you know, I was waiting for him to tell me that uh, we, were, we were all sitting on the edge of our seat. You know, you need to be reading this writer in the New York Times, or you need to be engaging with this philosopher, or you need to be figuring out uh, sort of global trends through this, through this organization. But without missing a beat, he said, my one piece of advice to all of you would be to develop a prayer life. And, you know, that was something of a disappointment. It's like, well, of course, you know, you're Tim Keller. Give us the real wisdom, you know. That's low-hanging fruit. You can always say develop a prayer life, but tell us what you really mean. And people continued to push back on him a little bit, asking him for more and more. And he said, listen, he told us very clearly that up to 2001, he didn't feel like he had a very, uh, very serious prayer life. In fact, he claims that in 2001, he really learned to pray. What happened first was 9-11, and the city of New York had been utterly changed by the, the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center. This drove him to learn to pray. Then his wife was uh, diagnosed with Crohn's, and there was all kinds of complications which made it very hard for their lives to look the same way they once did, which drove him to pray. And then he had been diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And he said, I wish I could go back at the very beginning of my ministry, and I wish I would have labored to have learned to pray. He then proceeded to tell us a story. He, he ended up writing a book on prayer that year, and, and so the reason why he was so verbose and so beautiful is because he was writing this book at the time. But he told us a story about his wife, Kathy, how she actually was the one who challenged him to learn how to pray better. And she uh, gave this sort of fictitious scenario in his life. He tells it in his book on prayer, and he told it around the table. She said, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within an hour unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before you go to sleep. And imagine you were told you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget this pill? Would you not get around to it some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you would never forget it. You would never miss it. Well, if we don't pray together, Kathy said to Tim Keller, her husband, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm, I'm certainly not going to be able, she said. We have to learn to pray. We can't let it slip our minds. And so at that table, Dr. Keller told us that he learned to pray in 2001. Learned to pray. He wished he would have learned it earlier. It was his advice to us. And uh, he, he ends up writing this book on prayer, which I'd recommend to you, probably one of the greatest books, at least I know, uh, to read on prayer. He claims that as he learned to pray, he had experienced some new breakthroughs and that there was a new sweetness to who Jesus Christ was in his life. But also there was a new frustration in his life as to the man he had become. And he said as he learned to pray, he learned afresh to wrestle with God like the saints of old. Now, why do I, why do I share this? Listen, as a pastor, one of the easiest things to do is to ask people how their prayer life is going, and virtually no Christian will say, it's great. Almost every one of us will say, I need to grow and improve 
in my prayer life. And on the Sunday after the death of Dr. Keller, it's wonderful to see that the passage that we are reflecting on is entirely and all about prayer. And so my hope this morning is I want to reflect on this passage and hope that we might too experience afresh the sweetness of Christ through our prayer life, but also grow uh, ever convinced and ever clear, more self-aware about who we are becoming so that we can learn to wrestle through uh, what it means to follow after Christ in a world like ours. So here's what I want to discuss this morning. I want to first ask a very obvious question. But I want to ask, what is prayer? Then I want to ask, what prevents us from prayer? And what in this passage do we find will revive our prayer life, okay? So first, what is prayer? Pretty straightforward. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, and I made the case that everybody prays. Every, everyone prays. I found a study, 2004, 30% of atheists admit that they pray sometimes. 17% of atheists say they pray regularly. I don't know why, but it seems as though, despite the fact that they outwardly say God does not exist, they can't help but pray. The evolutionary psychologist will say this is some sort of outworking of us feeling small in our world, uh, some outworking of, of us uh, feeling fragile and death being imminent. The Jungian psychologist might say we're processing our unconsciousness through these prayers. We're speaking aloud the confusion that exists inside of us. What actually is prayer? Jesus gives us three pictures in verse 7. Does he not? Ask, seek, knock. Three pictures. He's trying to tell us what prayer looks like. What is prayer? But what are we asking for? What are we seeking? What are we knocking, hoping to, hoping to be open? Well, as I wrestled through this passage this, this week, and I wrestled through how it fits to the Sermon on the Mount, much of which of the Sermon on the Mount, one theme flows nicely into the next, which flows nicely into the next, there's a lot of confusion. Is why all of a sudden does Jesus bring up prayer here towards the end of his sermon? And I think it's because Jesus in this sermon is trying to set out to us, he wants us to know what it might look like to be people of his kingdom, people who crave the things of his kingdom, people who say, I will sit at your feet, King Jesus, command me, I want to be one of your faithful and loyal subjects, rule over my heart and my life and my body, make me into one of your people. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's been creating a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be his people. We will be salt and light. Who doesn't want to be this? Who doesn't want to be known to their neighbors and to the watching world as salt and light? And Jesus has been arguing in the Sermon on the Mount that all that he's teaching us is a fulfillment of all of God's law in times of old. He's teaching us, and he's saying to us, this is what I want my people to look like. And we have said, week in and week out, it is a beautiful thing. There's nothing he's teaching that seems burdensome. There's nothing he's been going after that seems uh, difficult to us. He's challenged us on anger, on lust. He's challenged us to speak truthfully, to not retaliate. He's challenged us to be careful how we judge. He's challenged us to not use our religious piety, whether it be our giving or our prayer life, to not use these things to sort of bolster uh, our, our reputation in the world around us. He's told us and painted for us a beautiful picture of what it means to be his people. He's done it over and over and over again. He wants us to be, as we sung, to be the type of people who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He's, he's re- relentlessly gone after us, telling us, I want my people to be a spitting image, a, a reflection perfectly of their heavenly Father. And as he comes towards the end of the sermon, I think he understands the situation we find ourselves in. All of this is beautiful, and yet all of this is so far from us. All of this seems so attainable, and yet week in and week out, we march through these doors as people who failed to be as people to the neighbors around us. 
We say this is a beautiful life, a life of no anger, no retaliation. I want to be that. And yet, not long after our way home, we're already mounting a retaliation with someone in our life or in our workplace. Jesus is saying, ask, seek, knock. He's saying, then this is what prayer is. He's saying, I have instructed you as to what it means to be my people. Now to you who feel helpless, ask of me. Ask of my heavenly Father. We will give you these good things. We will, we will through our Holy Spirit, work and massage these good things into your life. What is prayer? Well, prayer has got to be some kind of conversation that is continued with God. Now, where does God start this conversation? We could say in one sense, God starts this conversation in creation. Not, a, not one of us can go outside and look into the stars and look at the beauty of this world and say, There's, there must be some artist behind this beautiful canvas that, that my eyes lay on everywhere I look. And this is why everyone prays. The, the, people are praying in response to the conversation they see in creation. They're crying out, saying, Lord, help me. But they don't know the right language with which to speak to their creator. There's been distance. There's a gap. And so this is why the Lord has continued to make himself known to us more clearly through his word and through his grace. And through this Sermon on the Mount. And now Jesus is saying to us, ask, seek, knock. Ask me to give you what I'm demanding of you. Ask my Heavenly Father to work into your life, to transform you, to make you into the type of people who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is what Jesus, this is what he is calling us to do. This is what prayer is. It's a response to communication come towards us. Maybe I'll say it this way. I'm sure that this should be common sense to all of us, but if we were somehow to, uh, you know, a child is born and is taken immediately from uh, the child, the child is taken immediately from her mother, and put in an isolated room, and no one ever spoke to them, what kind of language skills would that child have? Yeah, absolutely none. Everyone knows this is how language works. We learn as we are spoken to. All speech is answering speech. All spoke, we, we are all spoken to before we can speak, and we speak only to the degree to which we have been spoken to. And now Jesus has spoken to us very clearly in this and said, this is what my heavenly Father wants from you. And he's now given us language of the kingdom. And now prayer is a rightful response, taking that language and offering it right back to him. While saying, Lord, make us into the type of people who seek first your kingdom and his righteousness. Lord, make me into the type of person who's not prone to retaliation, fits of rage. Oh, Lord, this is who I want to be. In fact, Lord, my heart's divided. I don't always want to be this way, but I want to be this way with an undivided heart. Make me into this type of person. This is what prayer is. It is taking the words that have been spoken to you, the language that has been given to you, and returning it back to our Lord, saying, I hear, but I need help. Ask, seek, knock. Why not? If he's painted a picture of what it means to be his people, why not take these words back to him and say, Lord, the things you command, you must also give. For I am weak and feeble. This is, what our Lord, this is why our Lord turns to prayer as we come to the tail end of the sermon, is because he knows proper application of this teaching is going to require us to come to a place of humility and come to him and say, Lord, please give what you demand, for we are weak and feeble sinners. This is what prayer is, but now let's ask, what keeps us from praying? So in one sense, if prayer is more than just sort of asking for gifts, like a wish list to Santa Claus, if I'm trying to say prayer is taking the words that have been given to us and and returning the conversation back to God, then what actually keeps us from praying? Well, Jesus gives us some illustrations here in verses 8 through 11. You know, he tells the story of a son who's uh, asked his father for bread, and the father says, sure, son, here you go, and gives him a nice stone. 
And the son who asks his father for fish, and the father says, sure, son, and then drapes a serpent across his son's neck. And Jesus' comparison is from a lesser to the greater. He's saying, those illustrations sound evil to you because no earthly father would be that mean. Maybe one or two would be that wicked. But if earthly fathers are this way, how much more generous? You're evil compared to your heavenly father. So how much more generous will your heavenly father be to those who ask? So what stands in the way of us praying? Maybe one way to look at it is to say, what stands in the way of you praying right now, me praying, what stands in the way of your prayer life improving the rest of this week is that we all have daddy issues of some type. I think that's what Jesus is saying. That's why he says, you know, ask your heavenly father because we have some kind of daddy issues. We're like, we're like the child who's just too naive and thinks that he can do everything on his own. He hears a stomach growl and he says, I'm hungry. And rather than appeal to his father for food, he thinks, no, I want to grow in independence. And I've seen how my dad does this. And so he goes out to the barn and finds a seed and plants it into the ground, knowing, hey, I'll take care of my own hunger. Thank you very much. We're naive. We're naive children who don't know the desperate situation we found ourselves in. We're still convinced we can do it. And because we're convinced we can do it on our own skills, and because our Lord has given many of us quite a bit of skills, especially in a church like this, we find ourselves growing cold in prayer. We don't see ourselves as weak and vulnerable like a child with a loving Heavenly Father. We see ourselves actually as quite competent, maybe young adults, with a Heavenly Father who can fill in some of those gaps. You know, it's interesting, maybe, I don't know, I grew up in a home where my father every day prayed, Lord, bless this food to our body. Did anyone else ever hear someone pray that way or grow up around this? Bless this food to our body. You know, I had a seminary degree, and I didn't even know what that meant, but I still prayed it uh, all the time. Bless this food to our body. I wasn't exactly sure what it meant. And I found out there's actually a long history in, in, in church history of people in, in a time where nu- nutrients weren't as well understood as they are today who saw food as mysterious, that only God gives life, and somehow some food makes us sick, and other food sustains and prolongs our life. And there became a long pattern, a long habit of saying, Lord, lest you sustain and give me life through this ordinary food, I will get sick, I will rot away, I will die, I will pass through my digestive system uh, to no benefit to my body. So Lord, bless this food that it might be nourishment for my body. You know who prays that prayer? Someone who knows themselves to be a child, but someone who knows themselves to have a loving Heavenly Father. Or maybe you're like a child, though, who has been let down by your Heavenly Father. And you're reluctant to ask for things in prayer because you have this daddy issue. You say, I prayed. I tried prayer. It it didn't work. And this passage tells us that our Heavenly Father is waiting. He's going to give us every good thing we ask of Him. And yet we have memory issues. Someone sick, not getting the job we wanted, difficulties with the spouse, we prayed, no avail. We want to, be with, we want to have a child, yet again, no pregnancy. Want to find a spouse, seems hopeless. And so what ends up happening after a while? This disappointment with our Heavenly Father builds up some kind of scar tissue where we feel as though our Heavenly Father has let us down. And because of the scar tissue, we become reluctant to pray, and we pray less and less and less. And we think, my relationship with my Heavenly Father is so fragile that if I offer up a prayer and experience one more disappointment, it might sever the relationship. So better of me not to pray. I've heard some of you say this. Better of me not to pray. 
This is a dysfunctional relationship with your father. What does our passage say? He is a loving heavenly father who will give you all good things. You have to believe this. You have to believe this. Sure, his ways are not our ways. Sure, his plans are different than our plans. But you have to trust that he is giving to you all good things that you need. And you have to go to him again and again and say, I'm sorry to be a stubborn little child, Father. But I really, really, really want this. I really want this. Father, why? And you have to trust as you go to him again and again that this will not sever any relationship with your loving Heavenly Father. This will only grow the bond closer. Maybe we're naive like a little child. And we remember the days of asking our dad to go play catch, and he says, I'm too busy, and we think our Heavenly Father is doing the same to us. I fear for many in our church, prayer has become seen as unproductive. A decent use of time when you have some free time, maybe in the midst of your boredom, you'll offer up some prayers. Something you do when you hit rock bottom. But in our busy world, there seems to be other more urgent priorities and urgent ways in which we should move forward in our life. And prayer begins to take a back seat. I'm telling you this, what prevents you from praying is the fact that you have some relationship issues with your Heavenly Father. Some relationship issues. Listen, I am so sick of watching TV shows because every TV show is about, you know, the main character having some kind of daddy issue. Tell me of very few shows or movies you can point out where there's a functioning family relationship inside. And why is that? Because we all know this breakdown of the relationship shapes us and makes us into different people. And Jesus is now saying, your, your heavenly Father wants to give you every good thing. And I'm telling you right now, people of Christchurch, Toronto, some of you don't believe that to be true. You have, you have a daddy issue that needs to be addressed, and this is what is hindering you from praying. This is what is hindering you. Something deep down is dysfunctional in your relationship with your father, and the way you can know it's true is that you're not praying. Take an audit of your prayer life right now. If you don't feel you're praying much or at all, I assure you, I assure you the root cause is that you're not thinking correctly about your heavenly father. Well, if this is what could prevent us from praying, what will revive our prayer life? should be straightforward. Right thinking about our Heavenly Father. Right relationship with our Heavenly Father. This is how you will pray. You want to tell me that you love and are loyal to your Heavenly Father? I'm going to ask you to show me by your prayer life, and by your prayer life, I will see the type of relationship you have with your Heavenly Father. Jesus' logic is simple. You know an earthly father is not going to torment their little child. When a little child, you know, makes their first noise asking for bread, blah, blah, you know, some, some uh, you know, mix of sounds, what do parents do? The second they realize their child is communing with, communicating with them, what do they do? They immediately get bread and give it to the kid. They feed the kid until they're overweight and throwing up. Why? Because they're so happy to hear their kid wish for something. At some level, we have to understand that our, our relationship to our Heavenly Father is much more like that little that little child just learning to speak, bumbling out sentences to a, to, a, to a great and sovereign God who loves us and is thrilled to speak with us. You see, what I'm trying to argue for is this. Our Heavenly Father has arranged the world in such a way that he knows the beginning from the end. He's, he's arranged the ending of the story just as well as he's arranged today, okay? He's arranged the ends and the means to the end. He is all-powerful. All things are under his control. There is nothing that will surprise him today. There's nothing that will surprise him in the days to come. But he has also seen fit to structure our world in such a way that he will give us good gifts through the means of our prayers. He won't directly give us those gifts, 
until we come to him and ask and lift up prayers to him. This is how he has structured our world and he's structured our life with him. And in a world where we are constantly prone to fail, in a world where we are constantly prone to rebel against his ways, to hear his word and ignore it, the reason, at least I think, that he structured our world this way, not only ordaining the ends, but the means to the end, and prayer being a means to some ends, the reason he has ordained things to be this way is he wants us to be relentlessly reminded that we are contingent beings. We're desperate. Without his help, we are hopeless. And when we realize that, when we realize without, without the help of our Father, our food might just run through our system and serve as a poison to us, when we have that kind of humility and that kind of understanding about our situation before our Heavenly Father, it's only then that our Father will see and, and, and see it as safe to give you all the desires of your heart. <laughs> when you've come to that level of weakness and acknowledgement that you are a little child and He is a loving and Heavenly Father. And when you see your dependence and need on Him overshadowing all that you could want, all that you could ask for. It's then at that very point that our Lord says, this, my daughter, this, my son, is where I want you to be. Ask. I will give you every good thing. It doesn't say that he's going to give us everything. It doesn't say that he's going to give us everything that we think is good. But our Heavenly Father will give to us what we need. Every good thing. To quote Dr. Keller, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew what Uh, if we knew everything he knew. Let me read it again. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. There's a very certain promise in this passage. God's instinct, God's disposition is to hear your prayers and say, "Of, of course, my child, of course. I'm going to give this to you. Of course. You want to be one of my kingdom people? Of course. Of course I will give this to you. I was in a newcomer small group, I'll keep the details vague, but we were thinking about all the prayer requests that our group had offered, and we thought the Lord had answered all of them. We were wondering, what should we pray for now? The Lord had answered all of these previous big requests, serious requests. The Lord had answered all of them. His instinct, his disposition is to constantly give to us what we ask for. Yes, his ways are mysterious. Yes, they are different than ours. Yes, we don't always get what we want in the timeline we want, but our Lord is quick to answer our prayers. So let me ask, where have you forgotten that your Heavenly Father is not vindictive or mean or busy or distracted, but is absolutely loving and has the ability to continue to give you the attention you crave? Where do you have father issues which stand in the way of you properly praying to our Heavenly Father? Listen, your Heavenly Father wants to give you good things. He's ordained it to be that way. You might even say he's waiting in some senses for you to come to the place of humility where you ask in prayer, where your weariness and your busyness and your distracted mind, where you don't try to get past those things, but you take those things to him. You pray to him knowing full and well your mind's going to go everywhere. You pray to him full and well knowing how weary you are. And you say, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth and in my life as it is in heaven. And our Lord is itching Our Heavenly Father is itching to give you these good things. Now, how can I say that with any measure of certainty? Um, How can I say that with any measure of confidence, knowing full and well, some of you are going to ask for something for the thousandth time, and you're going to feel as though the Lord is saying no to you. You're going to sense the Lord saying no again and again. How can I say this with any confidence? 
I can say this with some measure of confidence because there was one man who we all know so well who had lived a completely virtuous and righteous life, exhibited exactly what the kingdom looked like. And this one man offered a prayer to his loving Heavenly Father. He said, Lord, if possible, may this cup pass some 2,000 years ago. And as he offered up this prayer to his Heavenly Father, the one who had earned right status before his Heavenly Father, the one who had every reason to sit at his Father's right hand and have his ear, cried out, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And it was in the cross, this mysterious place, where the prayers of Jesus were ignored. And it was in the cross where we can trust and have confidence that as surely as Christ died for our sins, as surely as the anger and the vitriol and the passion against sin from our God was absorbed in this cross, was defeated in this cross, as surely as that happened, there is not one prayer that goes offered that the Lord gives a silent treatment to. He's already done that. And it was, it was taken on by our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He was ignored so that we can trust that we were always heard. And the Lord didn't ignore him forever. He, rose him from the, he was risen from the dead. He ascended into heaven. This is what we've been celebrating. He now sits at God's right hand. And now each and every one of your prayers don't go unmediated to the ears of our Heavenly Father. But they go through the means of our mediator, Jesus Christ, a great Savior. There is no prayer that you you offer up that he doesn't take, scrub, clean, and lift to the Father. This is our confidence. Our Lord Jesus Christ hears our prayers, and he pleads and advocates on our behalf for us at the right hand of the Father. In him, our prayers will be heard. So if you're here today and you've never even reached out to your Heavenly Father, saying, I've got enough data to know I'm a mess, oh Lord, would you forgive me? Oh, Jesus, would you count me as one of your kingdom people? Would you make me into the type of person who's received into heaven with my loving creator? Then I would challenge you to offer up that prayer today. But if you're here and scar tissues build up and you feel you just can't pray over something anymore, find me, find anyone sitting next to you. Let them know that you need prayer. And this week, offer up your prayers to your heavenly Father, knowing full and well that he will not withhold one good thing from you. I assure you and promise you. This is our hope in this passage. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your ways are mysterious. And at the end of the day, we know that suffering and, and death accompanied all of the saints who came before us, and yet you give to us such bold promises in prayer. We have to trust. We have confidence that all of our prayers are heard by you, and you will not withhold one good thing for us, and we just don't always see these things clearly. And so, Father, this week, would you make us into the type of people who pray with passion, renew our prayer life as a church, make us into a people who see our humility and our desperation, and in that find great comfort and strength in you. Father, hear the prayers of your church, be patient with us, and continue to speak to us clearly through your words that we might say words back to you, words that you want to hear words that you want to bless, words of which you want to answer. And Father, make us more and more into your people, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.